Hello, everyone. What's up? Welcome to another episode of The Brevity Code. Today, I've got a, a good buddy, uh, Greg Wiseman, who's an attorney. Uh, so in stark contrast to the last episode that was pretty intense and pretty heavy, we're going to keep it light. And we're returning back to the business today. We're going to talk about startups. I want to talk a lot about the legal aspects of what to watch out for and what to protect yourself against when starting a business. And we're also going to dive a little bit into Greg's lane, which is mostly focused in fashion, entertainment, music, and athlete areas. So I hope you enjoy today's show. On the Brevity Code podcast, we'll explore a wide range of topics from the very people that give form and color to our world. We'll hear from artists, brand builders, industry leaders, pro athletes, fitness and endurance coaches, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and many others. Through their actions, they enrich us with their vision, creativity, and bravery. Our guests have all been successful by flying in the face of conventional wisdom. We'll learn from them the ways in which we can apply that very knowledge to our own path and toward our own self-fulfillment. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to another episode of the Brevity Code Show. Today I have on a good friend and super intellectual guy. You like that? You like that, Greg? Greg Wiseman. Welcome to the show, Greg. What's happening, Ryan? Hey, man. Um, Thank you for joining me today. I know you're a busy guy. Thank you for carving out some time. Um, So jumping right in, you're, you're interesting to me because you're a lawyer that surfs. And to my knowledge, you don't even golf. Is that the case? Uh, that makes you super cool in my book, by the way. Thank you, bro. Yeah. Appreciate it. Um, this actually came up the other day. I was talking to a fairly well-known competitor of mine, and uh, he said he was asking me, you know, do you golf? I said no, and he said you should golf. And I said, you know, like a normative command. What do you mean I should golf? And uh, he said, well, you know, that's where that's where I do a lot of business and I get a lot of clients. And I said. So here's my philosophy on golf. No disrespect to anyone that golfs. I like it. Watch the Masters. Stoke for Tiger. Yep. Um, why be the 115,412th lawyer in California who golfs when you can be the only one or one of the only ones that surfs and skateboards? And that's who I am. I mean, I just, you know, I in, in more ways than occupationally, I like to be who I am. And that's who I am. Right. And again, I think that resonates. And, and I think the sort of authenticity of that, um, well, I think it's a reflection of your client base. So, you know, speaking of that, I think it would be interesting to hear from you how you got into it, because obviously you surf and, and yet now you are working with clients in the surf and action sports industry, as well as, you know, music and fashion and, and artists and other, and we'll, we'll get there. But do you feel like that was just, hey, man, I surf, I, I naturally have gravitated towards that as my client base? It's, it would seem to me that everyone would kind of want that client base because it sounds fun as opposed to being <laughs> maybe a trial attorney. Representing or, Mexico? Or, yeah. But so, like, how do you – what's your path to get to where you are? You seem to be – I mean, I just feel like you're having so much fun. If, if you can live your lifestyle and your clients are sort of a reflection of your – you know, your chosen occupation, you're, you're kind of winning. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I don't maybe want to share the secret too much, but I feel that way all the time. I pinch myself. I mean, most lawyers studies have shown ABA studies, California studies. Most lawyers hate being a lawyer. I, I, I don't even mean that hyperbolically. Like they hate it. And I, when I started my career, uh, I hated it. 
So fresh out of law school in 1994, which is 25 years ago, uh, this was the early Clinton, but really a hangover from the Bush one recession. The market was bad. And my first job um, was doing medical malpractice defense, which is a subset of insurance defense work. So I was a litigator um, and I hated it. And I actually kind of started to question as a first year lawyer, is this really all there is? And um, autonomy is something that in any profession, particularly law, uh, you know, you can, you can shoot for money, but the goal is happiness and autonomy and autonomy creates happiness, um, especially in pro professional services. And for lawyers, it's about finding that path where you can say, uh, you know, I want to be a partner, but I want to be a partner in a firm or amongst a group of people that get me, that appreciate me working with clients that you want to work with doing work that you want to do that actually keeps you motivated and excited. And, um, from a rocky start doing something I didn't want to do, I quickly realized there's got to be a different way. Um, the story, how I got into this unique practice is um, I ended up being miserable and uh, I was working out at the gym, the buddy of mine who had a clothing company, a tiny little clothing company down in San Diego. And he said, you know, you should call my lawyers. It's a tiny little law firm in LA and they have this boutique practice where they represent people mostly in the fashion business. And that sounded totally intriguing to me, having no entrepreneurial background. My dad's a doctor. My mom was a city planner. I, I knew only kind of professorial level people. I knew no one that actually bought and sold anything. Um, and I said, that sounds really fun. So I called this guy, tiny little firm called Rhinus and Rhinus, which is gone now. And these two brothers, Mitch Rhinus and Richard Rhinus, my mentors, um, they said, yeah, we need a, a young lawyer. Uh, drove to LA, interviewed, got the job, was the youngest lawyer by 25 years, really trial by fire, making no money, um, but enjoying every bit of it, learning and soaking up as much as I possibly could. Um, I think the moniker as a young lawyer is to say, you know, put me on, put me in coach. I'll do anything. Mm -hmm. I'll try anything. Hey, what's that? Can I write that? Can I argue that? Can I, you know, and just doing it. So litigation, transactional motions, um, deals. And what I realized was it was who we represented that was the fun part. It was these entrepreneurial fashion and entertainment driven clients in consumer goods, being outside general counsel for them, loving who they are. These are brands that I grew up with that I loved. I mean, brands that I used to sketch their logos on my peachy folders. Like this was the idea that I could work with them yeah. as a 25 year old was incredible. Yeah, no doubt. And so you make that leap, and and then how do you branch that or transition that into um, you, your eventual career? So how, how do you go from there? So now I'm hearing the foundation, the building blocks are happening. You're cutting your teeth, total trial by fire, learning or drinking through a fire hose, right? So you do that for how many years? So while well, you do it until they, you either kind of wake up one day and you realize you're doing more advanced work intellectually or they anoint you a partner um and in my case i was only doing it for five years with that group and that that firm actually the managing partner if you want to hear an entrepreneurial story uh he and his son-in-law were in 1999 2000s they they opened Krispy Kreme donuts in southern california mm, wow so he actually transitioned out of law uh to do something that was very successful at least initially um, if you remember all the fanfare when Krispy Kreme came to the West Coast, it yeah. was them. Yeah, wow. So 
what I realized was, hey, I love you guys. You've taught me everything, but you're making donuts now and you're not doing law and I need to find a place that, you know, I can go be the lawyer. And, and I was able to, you know, then say I've got clients and I can go somewhere. And I did. Yeah. And so do you immediately start looking at, you know, like you were talking about the brand affinity that, that you had and, and, and it gave you a certain amount of, you know, personal satisfaction with your career as that translates into, you know, current day you, um, you know, how, how are you, how do you get in front of a pro surfer or a brand that you like, or how, how did you acquire? So I am sure some of it was word of mouth and a lot of it was inbound to you because you're good at what you do. But, um, was there anyone that in particular you sort of were on the path to seek out or is that as a mentor? No, more as a client. Oh, all the time. Oh, um, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I still have a wish list of people. I mean, I uh, I'll tell you a funny story. Like, I I went to Torquemines High School with with Tony Hawk, and my entire life, I'm not gonna lie, I'm I'm waiting to represent Tony Hawk one day. I can't wait to do it. I haven't done it yet, but I represent 25 other pro skaters uh, around him, and probably 20 other skate brands. And so, yeah, there's there's a sense of like. I know the brands or the people that I want to represent and yeah. I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of them. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one too. That's, I, I kind of man crush on him too. He's, he, he's a pretty rad guy. Yeah. Um, definitely. Pioneer of a sport and, and a major entrepreneur and just uh, badass. Um, before we get too authentic, far, even, even at 51 years old, like still crushing just it. Just ripping. Yeah. Ripping it watching his kids being a dad being uh you know mentoring uh, really the industry being a steward of skateboarding which i think um the surf guys should actually look a little closely at because they're not doing it as well yeah so before we get too far down the path of the client list which is intriguing and and and, and your 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 business operations as it relates to supporting them it might be good for you to give the listeners a sense of you know, your work scope, some, some of the things that you might offer as services to, to these individuals, like, you know, what, what, what could they expect? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I should probably tell you a little bit about what I do. Right. Um, so I am outside general counsel for on any given day, probably 125 apparel, footwear, accessories, cosmetics, brands. Um, some of these brands are multiple brands owned by one company. Um, sometimes these are the domestic operations for a foreign company. Uh, sometimes I will help a domestic company just set up a foreign, uh, business. And, uh, I also represent a lot of, um, entertainers. I'm not an entertainment attorney. And I think there's a distinction when I say I represent entertainers, I'm not actively negotiating their SAG contracts, their uh, touring schedule, but I represent lots of musicians, actors and actresses, models and celebrities and influencers, I guess I have to say now, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do their non-entertainment business stuff. So it's endorsements. It's when they want to start uh, a commercial business that is outside of entertainment and they don't know how to do it. And frankly, their agent, their manager, their business manager, and even their entertainment attorney reluctantly uh, will admit that they don't know how to do it. So that, that I'm the guy that does that. So um, I'm sometimes 
the second lawyer or the business lawyer for some pretty big name entertainers to help them set up all these other ventures. And do you do you get it? What about like do you work with musicians? Meaning, um, I'm just this is total curiosity. Not but like hip hop dudes, like like what? Yeah. So here's my uh, picture of Snoop Dogg on the nice. wall. Nice. So I've been Snoop's lawyer now for like ten or twelve years. Is that right? Uh, yeah, and you know Snoop has a, a host of lawyers, but the stuff that I I can say it because it's public. A lot of this is confidential, but you know he is. As, I think he was on the cover of Inc. magazine, or perhaps it was Fortune. But I mean, his investment work, the other businesses that he has put his time and non-entertainment, you know, capital into is it's amazing. So. Uh, all these guys get hit up probably more than you even can possibly imagine. Every single person in their orbit or who wants to be in their orbit is hitting them up with a business idea. And so just doing the triage of saying no and vetting that first level, sometimes it's me, sometimes it's the business manager, sometimes it's the, the talent manager. Someone has to fill that role. And then when the deal looks good or sometimes the deals frankly aren't good, but they do them anyway because it's a friend of a friend or they feel some compulsion to want to do it sometimes out of the goodness of their heart, sadly, um, because they lose their money. But uh, these celebrities will, you know, they need it paper. They need to figure out how to structure it. And that's where I come in. Yeah. So I've heard some from speaking to some other folks in, in your line of work that sometimes they'll actually, and I'm not insinuating anything with Snoop, doesn't sound like it's the case. They'll actually fire clients. Uh, have you have you ever had a situation where you ran into a particular celebrity? Obviously, I'd love to know the name, but you're probably not going to give that up. But that you've been like, dude, we are done. You go find someone else. Once every three years, I fire a client. Um, believe it or not, it's it's less frequently. It's never been a celebrity, actually, which is which is odd. And the reason the reason it's not a celebrity is most of the time. So celebrities only travel in concentric circles of influence where there's always eight other people in their ear. And so the issue with the celebrity is sometimes you're not in their ear and you have to kind of play the, uh, the politics of who might be in their ear. And it's a pain in the ass, but at least you get someone to listen to you and pay your bill. And I will tell you that the reason you end up firing a, cele- a client rather is they either aren't listening to you or they're not paying your bill. I mean, that's... It, Usually 95% of the time, it's one of those two reasons. Um, so that happens more often when it's an uh, entrepreneur CEO, frankly, who just stops taking your call or demands that you do something that is either unethical, illegal, or uh, totally against your advice. And you just can, in good conscience, go forward with it. And you say, look, man, I'm over it. Or, or pay the bill, Right. Yeah, no, I bet. Are you able to share any stories with us as far as um, without naming names or companies that uh, I don't know, man, like that you've seen you, you've entered a deal with? I would imagine you like you were talking about kind of the personality management side of things. So you've got, you know, to me, you're 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 the glue, right? So you've got the the talent on one side and, and some type of representation on, on another via manager and then some like talent agency and then said company, you know, monster energy drink. And you're trying to, you know, your talent wants to work with monster, but the dollars aren't adding up and, and there's greed involved and there's ego involved. I mean, does that get, how tricky does that get? And how much do you get your fingers into that stuff? Are you untangling that? Or am I making this, this ball of wax bigger than it really is? Nope. 
It's every day. So uh, <laughs> what I think, um, the, so let's, let's do the 30,000 foot view of that. So the 30,000 foot view of that is how do I manage the, the intertwined relationships in a manner that advances the client's interest either toward doing the, the deal or because they have to walk away, you know, basically articulating we're, we're not going to do it unless you give us X, Y, or Z politely doing it without pissing someone off, doing it without burning a bridge. It's all psychology. So you're dealing with leverage. You're dealing with business leverage in a negotiation. The thing about having a celebrity client, we talked earlier about startups, um, but the, the interesting thing about the celebrity client is they're in demand. So you have some leverage. So it gives you some opportunity to say to an intransigent, intransigent I can't say that, uh, let's say a large company like a Nike or a Target or Disney is the worst, Disney, Mattel, the big studios, you know, they say, uh, let's do this deal. They send you a term sheet. It looks great. They get your guy excited, your client, uh, whether it's a high profile designer or celebrity, um, they, they're all into it. And then they say, well, we're just going to shoot it to our lawyer in Burbank, sit tight. And all of a sudden some flunky in Burbank is sending me like a 96 page you know, standard license agreement with a standard licensing handbook to do some really complex novel kind of thing that was pitched. And it's not going to work because we're not some private label manufacturer, you know, selling widgets. And so having, finding the way to kind of communicate, Hey, look, do you, you know, very respectfully, do you know who you're dealing with here? Like this is, he's not going to sign the 95 page <laughs> agreement. Right. Um, because that's not who we are. And so if you really want to work with us, we're going to either going to use our agreement or it's going to be 90% of this has got to go away. And so finding a way to manage the, the politics of either people's expectations or their own, we'll call it bureaucracy to get a deal done is really important. And then, then it becomes understanding who, who's answering to whom, who's in control, what office speaks to what office and trying to, to preemptively figure out the chess match of those, those pieces, which is not deal at all. It's not, that's not lawyer like that's, that's psychology. Um, and I guess business, you know, strategy. Yeah. And you, you said earlier, you're doing that. You've got 125 clients, right? And it's, it's amazing the capacity, which is well beyond my realm of those nuanced conversations all the interplay and you're, you're, you're bouncing back and forth between the clients. I mean, I, I find that really remarkable from picking up, oh yeah, you know, one hour you're on with this guy, the next you're like, you got 15 seconds before that next call starts. Boom. Okay. Load that cassette into my brain. Okay. Yeah. We were talking about X, Y, Z. I need to get, that's, um, do you do like any, uh, like enhancers as far as, um, you know, for your brain, like some of the on it product that Rogan talks about or, you know, you know, the Silicon Valley uh, uh, crazy coffee. shit. Coffee, a little bit of coffee. Coffee's good. My wife would like me on decaf, but uh, no, I'm, you know, I, it, I think I think it's self, to answer your own question, it's intellectually stimulating enough. I mean, mm. I feel like I, if anything, I want to just watch football and tune out because I, there's too much to process or sometimes shifting gears between one conference call ends and then I got to go, you know, just go for a run or mm -hmm. go for a surf or whatever for an hour just to kind of refocus on that next piece so that I'm fresh for it. Um, I do think that's important. Yeah, right. 
So, I mean, switching gears a little bit here, let's talk about the guy that's not famous. Let's talk about uh, the entrepreneur. Because I think a lot of people that might be listening to this podcast in particular are, you know, they're the dreamers. They're the visionaries. Um, but, you know, they don't they don't have the notoriety nor do they have the bankroll. What, what do you say to someone that may approach you and say, look, here's my idea. Here's my deck. First of all, what do you think? Second, um, you know, where do I start? How do I protect my brand to a point where I'm not overspending? Because as you and I both know, you can spend into more protections than perhaps is necessary in the beginning when you don't even have a proven concept yet. So what do you say to those people? Sure. So um, everything is budget-driven, okay? So the budget, we can only do what someone can afford, period. And, you know, this is my occupation. This is how I put food on the table. So obviously I want to make money. I sell time. Most lawyers are hourly, uh, hourly meaning there's only a certain amount of billable hours in a day that I want to spend making money. And I don't want to dedicate too many of those hours to working for free. Um, the reality is we do. And the reality is there are lost puppy clients. There are clients who a good friend or family member or existing client says, you got to help my brother or cousin out. And, um, I take lots of phone calls and give lots of advice, probably more than I should and not charge someone. And I will say to them, you know, this is the best uh, advice you're ever going to get for nothing, but, uh, I got a time limit on it. I've got, you got, you know, one hour or an hour and a half and let's go, let's talk. Let me try and give you some early strategy maybe to get you to market and come back when you've got a few bucks or here's what we should do when you have the money to get there. And, you know, business doesn't, if the barriers to entry financially in the businesses that we're talking about, consumer goods, particularly apparel, um, I mean, Moss was selling volleyball shorts out of the back of you know his car at USC. So um, it, people can get going, and especially now with with D 2 C direct e commerce Shopify driven business, um, you've got someone who'll print your T shirts. You got someone in China that'll source your footwear. I mean, Jesus, footwear used to be an impossible sourcing problem. Yes. That, no one could do. Now it's like anyone, you know, 16-year-old kids are like, I, I've got a footwear line. What do you mean a footwear <laughs> line? You know? Yeah. You Google it and you now have a guy in China that's going to make them for you. So so back to, to where this is going. So so the short answer is it doesn't take a whole lot to get going. We can, we can give a plan on the corporate, the contract, the IP, and the regulatory side. Those are kind of the four disciplines, four legal disciplines you have to worry about. Get an entity in place if you can afford to do it because it's pretty cheap. You can even legal zoom it. I mean, sometimes I go, here's how you do it. I'm not going to charge you. Go legal zoom it. But here's what you have to worry about. And you probably should use me, but you can't afford me. Uh, then we talk about the IP. So here's what your trademark uh, is or is not. Here's what trademark law is because it's really confusing. Um, you know, here are the domestic rules. Here are the foreign rules. Here are the budgets you should think about what countries you want to be in, where, and what classes of goods and when, and here's how much it's going to cost. And we can stagger a plan for what's your first year versus when you get 10 grand, you should do these other three. And when you have 20 grand, it's another four. Uh, and on the contract side, you're not going to do sales rep agreements and license agreements and distribution agreements when you're a startup, but here are some key agreements that you're going to have to have day one. If you don't have them, you're, you're screwed. And so we, again, back to the theme, the theme is, Everything is budget driven. If you don't have the money, obviously you're not going to do it. 
that doesn't mean you can't launch your product. So as long as you have the, the right permits in place to go, go. Yeah, no, that's all good. And I think it's, um, it's very telling, you know, the, the, as you get traction or as you get exposure into the startup brand, you mentioned, you know, Moss out of the back of his car, it was me in my garage. This thing unravels, you know, this, it unravels this universe into what you, I don't even think most people, unless they offer a course now in college or something, but they really should, maybe they should, um, almost like a intro to business law thing where people are, I mean, I just don't think you have any idea about the people don't understand the category classifications and, you know, the international and, and how you can buy chunks of countries and, and all the various things you just said when all they're really trying to do is go, got to have a great idea for a t-shirt company, you know, and, and then it just sort of unravels into this, you know, universe of never ending possibilities of brand protection. Well, it, it's the, it's the tension between what we just talked about. So we talked about the barriers to entry being low yeah. and get your product out there, but you can get, you're going to get your product out there with some business risk. So the business risk is there's always business risk. And so if you philosophize, you basically are telling these startup clients, look, at some point you're doing this every time you launch a product, whether it's a consumer claim, whether it's a trademark claim. I mean, most of trademark law in the United States, certainly, which is based upon use in commerce, you almost can't know with any definitive certainty, will I be sued for infringement when I launch this product? It's mm -hmm. almost impossible to know that because we are a use-based jurisdiction, not a registration-based jurisdiction. So even if you own a trademark registration, you don't know. So again, once you kind of convince an entrepreneur there's going to be risk, they just need to go deal with it. You know, go make some money. And remember that most, you know, defensively, if people are bringing claims, they usually only bring claims when you have money in your deep pocket. So in the, when you're flying below the radar yep. at the beginning, yep. um, you might make some mistakes. You might, you know, the amount of people that get employment law wrong, particularly in California, is mind boggling. Okay. The amount of people that are misclassifying people as independent contractors when they should be employees uh, or, or have unpaid interns or all this stuff. They're like, I didn't know that was illegal. Well, yeah, you can't do that. Um, doesn't mean they didn't do it, but you can't do that. You know? Yeah. I mean, I'm almost laughing. Like you said, you, you enter this, this place with this purity of your idea and your concept and you roll it out. And like you said, you might be an infringement. You don't even know. And then let's say this idea that you have takes hold and you actually start to make money. Then they come out of the woodwork and they is everyone. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, if you are hot and if you are making money, the the infringement claims and the lawsuits and the C and Ds uh, start to fly. So, can, uh, are we all audiences? Can I swear a little bit? Oh yeah, we can be. All I got to do is flip this button that says explicit, and we can go. Yeah, right, we go. The <laughs> bullshit claims. Um, the bullshit claims you can't control. They're going to come out of nowhere. That's part of what you're talking about. Um, the cease and desist letters, that's usually how it starts. Someone, it's a shakedown. And so managing the shakedown process, sometimes, frankly, you got to pay someone a thousand bucks because you're going to pay me 10,000. Um, so there, that's part of it. Then there's the ones that someone probably does have a good faith belief. Hey, I think you're stepping into my space here and you might completely disagree, but they're entitled to their good faith, uh, belief that you are. 
Then there's this stuff at the USPTO because trademark registrations, that's a whole other area where a different person who's an examining attorney in Washington, D.C., who's probably a scientist who doesn't understand the fashion biz or doesn't understand your product and is doing 100 of these a day, all of a sudden says, yeah, I think your mark is conflicting with these five others. And you look at it and you're, you're dumbfounded. You, you don't see it. Um, but, you know, and you might even contact those other people and they might say, yeah, we don't care. So you're playing in this pool of uncertainty. This is what really, to, the, to your point, it makes business people crazy that there's no certainty. And they always laugh. It gives us a job, right? That's, you know, what we, you lawyers live off this. And there's some truth to that, which is the law, the law of the gray area. Because it's such, like, IP is the grayest, trademark is the grayest of all gray areas. Um, almost deliberately. And so, yeah, you better have a good lawyer to argue through this stuff strategically because there's almost never a black and white answer. Yeah. Earlier when you were talking through your answer there, I was just thinking about, you know, we've been through the silliest of silly, for instance, how to warehouse sale, how to woman slip and fall in our warehouse, sue us. We had to, we hired a private investigator. Uh, we, we trailed her to Vegas where she was dancing, um, I mean, so it's gone from the absurd, uh, but let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. You should have had insurance and your insurance should have picked that up. Correct. Yeah, that's true. And, and I, I say that because it's one of the few areas where business insurance actually works because it doesn't work for most business claims, but it works in, in an actual injury, like slip and fall kind of stuff. So, you know, knock on wood, uh, I just had a client that was sued. Uh, that owns a, a surf um, surf lessons company, uh, surf rental, surf lessons, and the woman uh, allegedly lost a finger surfing. Um, and uh, it seemed like it would be extremely hard to do. Just saying, it's pretty <laughs> difficult to have the top of your finger chopped off by a leash cord, um, but it happened. So you know, knock on wood, that's what insurance is there for. So unfortunately, you know, fortunately, unfortunately. Uh, the opportunists, and, and of course, even if there's a legitimate claim, the person's going to ask for somewhere between two to ten times as much money mm. as they should probably be awarded. So that becomes another game for lawyers. That's why I don't like the injury stuff. I'd rather do the business stuff. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Let's just say we've got this business off the ground and it's working and, and it's a partnership arrangement and you've got a shareholder agreement in place and they're kind of doing their thing. At what point do you advise – a group, and I realize this answer is, could could go a lot of different ways, to, to discuss uh, exit strategy and alignment. Because, you know, again, speaking from experience, the the brand, um, Paul Frank, we, we were kind of on this rocket ship, and all this success started happening quickly around us. And I we never had some of those initial and difficult conversations amongst the partners early. Hey, what do you want out of this? Oh, well, gee, it's not the same thing that I want out of this. Have you, do you have any, you know, sort of, Good circumstantial evidence on this. So, uh, you know, your story is is legendary in the in the garment business. Right? Oh, the story super! Of, you know, <laughs> uh, the lore of the different lawsuits, wow. plural, related to uh, you know, Paul Frank owners when people left and how they left and what they wanted. I mean, no different than in the premium denim space in LA. The famous case, uh, two of them. One was Jordash versus. Um, it was either guest Jordash in the 80s. I was I was in high school. 
Um, and then more recently uh, was Seven for All Mankind versus the guys at Citizens, who one night, I guess, up and left Seven to start Citizens, allegedly mm. stole patterns, uh, you know, an IP back when when IP was like actual cutouts of, of patterns for garments and finish and washes. And so, and they all suit each other and um, that lasted years. So to avoid that, um, there are kind of two ways to do it. And, and I'll, I'll let you sort of, there, there's no right answer. And so you, we can talk about it for a second. So one way to do this is to be preemptive when you form a business, because it's kind of what you're talking about. Hey, we didn't do this. Should we have sat down with a lawyer and methodically gone over uh, in a buy-sell agreement, if party A doesn't like party B or party A wants to sell strategic and party B, member B, owner B wants to not sell, go public, or we have a dispute or, you know, wants to leave, wants to join a competitive business, how do we deal with all that? We buy you back. We punish you by buying you back at a low number. Do we, how do we, do we do evaluation? Is it fair market value? Is it one appraiser? Is it three appraisers? Take an average. If the average is between, you know, under 20%, then we, we do it. If it's greater than 20%, then we get another appraisal. I mean, it, you can overcomplicate this to death. And the problem, I think, in overthinking it at the beginning is you don't know. And, you know, business relationships are business marriages. And my philosophy is you want to make sure the relationship is weighted so that everyone has the appropriate say. I mean, if you wanted to anoint certain people, we're the decision makers and you're not, do it on day one. But if you're all decision makers and you do have disagreement, your brand's going to suffer. Yeah. So if one philosophy is to not worry about it, get to the point where you are partners, you're dealing with something five years, 10 years after you started, or you have a difference of opinion, hey, get in your boardroom, work it out. Yeah, but now five, 10 years down the line, that thing might have a lot of value on it, right? So you might have one partner with, hey, let's. I'm I'm starry eyed. I'm I want to cash out, and you know. But your partners, you know. I mm. mean, this is the whole essence of partnership. Is, uh, you know, if you and a wife uh, decide, you know, one wants a kid, one doesn't want a kid, you got to work it out. Um, you can put there. Are, there are statutory uh, defaults for dissolution that if you don't work it out in your paperwork, um, there are. There are steps you can take, uh, voluntary dissolutions, buyback rights, put call rights, stuff that's all statutory. And each state's different, so I don't want to get into California versus Delaware or whatever. But um, so that's one way that, you know, when you guys, when people go to war, they work out. The reality is, uh, especially if there's value there, I think it's actually a better situation than if there's no value. Because if there's value, you can either find someone else who wants to come in and invest, and particularly today where there's private equity money that used to never be in the fashion business. Now it is. Um, one partner says, I want out, and I have this right now with a with one it's a cosmetics company. Um, you know, They're going to find someone to buy them out because um, there's definitely money available that's stocking these businesses that are successful saying, we'll swap you for you. But the reality is if you – if you force it on paper, if someone is forced to accept something that they don't want, paper ends up being, I think, arbitrary. And it's arbitrary in a way where one person wins and one person loses. And if you have that situation as a recipe for dispute, this is why I don't like 
over legislating in advance what it might be hmm. because the only time you're going to exercise that right is when it's politically advantageous or financially advantageous to screw someone else haha i can get this today and end up buying this right for far less than it's worth if you let the market dictate it that's just what people agreed to do at the time willing buyer willing seller then you probably get a fairer deal and you probably are less likely to see it implode. So I'm always looking to see, to make sure that these businesses don't implode later because it doesn't work for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Good thoughts there. I mean, I just, I guess it's really, it has to do with that. Where, what is the health of that relationship at that point when, when you reach that level of success, right? Um, that, that is the context you're putting around it, right? Like you're assuming, Hey, your partner's going to work it out, but obviously, the health of the relationship five, ten years in on a business could be grinded down to a nub and, you know, it, that, that brings just a friction in, into an already difficult situation. Therapy. Business therapy. <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you, you know, you, know, uh, you have you, – you harbor resentments, business resentments the same way you harbor spousal resentments. I mean you at some point wake up and you either are thinking in your head – I've been I've been carrying this business for ten years. This other guy has been on vacation, surfing, gone. They don't do shit. Uh, you know, they're supposed to be my designer. Their designs are terrible. I had to hire a designer. They're supposed to be my production guy, but I hired, had to hire a production guy. You know, you really need at the beginning the the band, so to speak, in a, in a fashion business and a consumer goods business. You need the dreamer, visionary, creative person. You need the money person, and you need the operations person. Sometimes it's one person wearing three hats unsuccessfully. Sometimes it's two people wearing the three hats. Sometimes it's three people. Sometimes it's five people trying to wear three hats. But those are kind of the three, you know, larger sort of tectonic disciplines that you need. And there's bound to be a sense that one person is over or underperforming, period. One way to deal with it is you deal with it early. You don't have a resentment. You say, hey, I'm working harder. I'm going to take a larger salary. And hopefully that person... Have you seen that work? Because I don't. uh. (laughs) I've seen it where someone goes on, particularly where a woman will go on maternity leave. um, And that's more of an arbitrary bright line about I'm not working as much. Therefore, you know, less less work input means lower salary doesn't mean your equity goes down. But that's one issue. Or, you know, sometimes you just got to bite the deal that you made. You made a. If you make a four-person, 25% each deal, uh, it is what it is. And if you had a lawyer who said stuff at the beginning like, look, if someone leaves, what happens? Like, oh, we never thought about that. Well, mm, exactly. Think about it. So that, that brings up my, my next curiosity, which is sort of like what are the common mistakes that you see the, the most? Oh, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. If I was their attorney, I would have done this to set them up. Like – what do you run into all the time that just that one little nugget you can give the audience that would be like, God, if you could just say, just set someone in motion for success, what would that be? Talk to a lawyer before you do anything. I mean, I don't care who it is. If it's Uncle Bob uh, who does a probate and estate planning, he'll know something. Run stuff, you know, get things in writing. I mean, it's common sense. Get things in writing. Every agreement you have with anybody, I don't care if it's a vendor, employee, partner. Whatever understanding you have, put it in writing. Put it in writing clearly. Make sure the writing actually says all the magic language or even uh, colloquial stuff. You know, we our deal is twenty five percent each. 
everyone email back saying yes. At least that solves the problem of what the deal is. Mm. Um, talking to a lawyer to walk through these pitfalls. On the corporate side, it is um, failing to define people's roles and what happens if they don't fulfill them. That's a biggie. It's kind of the theme of what you talked about. What are the expectations? Uh, on the IP side, absolutely, it's searching, clearing, and dealing with your trademarks. It, it has to be because if you get it wrong at the beginning, trademarks that you file at the USPTO, it, it's incredibly um, – the phrase would be detail-oriented or uh, – the phrase I want to say is if you make one technical mistake – on the very first filing, it can invalidate the whole thing. Wow. So, so you check the wrong box. There are no mechanisms to go back and change it later. And sometimes it's fatal. It's not fatal to your overall brand, but it might be fatal to that registration. If that registration is the linchpin for your overall brand, uh, then it's a problem. So I've seen people do that wrong. Uh, on the contract side, it is, again, getting stuff in writing and just being clear. Not getting things in writing probably is, ironically, as stupid as it sounds, over-promising. Hey, man, uh, thanks for doing all of this stuff. Uh, when the business blows up later, I'm going to take care of you. You start saying, I'll take care of you to someone, it's going to blow up and bite you in the ass all the time. And you've seen it and continue to see it. This week. <laughs> right. This week, we're dealing with departed, <laughs> departed senior employee who uh, for a client, and he's been there for 10 years. And they had a cause termination. This, this mm. some, was someone that needed to go. Mm -hmm. uh, and we got, you know, a letter, kind of a cockamamie letter that said, I want all this money and here's what I'm entitled to. So we have to deal with it. Yeah. On the clarity side, you talked about some of the, the, the technicality of, uh, of an IP filing with a USPTO. Um, does LegalZoom offer a service like that? And I assume your opinion would be, yes, if they do, this would be an area where you'd want the lawyer's advisement and not having the layman try to play lawyer and click boxes that literally might be a detriment to their own brand. Well, it's a really good – that's a timely question because as you're seeing, LegalZoom's announced uh, they have a new service where you actually talk to a lawyer. So they want to be in that business now. And I don't know what it is and I don't know uh, how – detailed you're going to get in terms of information uh what the what the quality or quantity is of the representation that you get but to isolate the essence of your question which is clicking through versus talking to someone you have to talk to someone the reason is sometimes you don't even have a trademark it's a copyright you're just so confused as to what you what you think you have right so sitting down and saying what are we doing here Okay, now I get what you're doing. It turns out that you actually have a copyright here. This is a trademark, but you haven't used it yet, and you're actually not going to use it for years um, because you can file for an intent to use trademark registration, but you actually have to use it in order to get one. Let's talk about what the timing should be here. Let's talk about other countries that you're not in and when it's going to be material to go there. Let's talk about who else is out there and what we think is going to happen in terms of cease and desist. So these are things that can't be clicked on. And I will tell you that that first one hour, two hours of kind of strategic 30,000 foot, what have you got? What are we going to do? What's the plan is more important than anything. 
Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. Um, I'm certainly hesitant to, to go that route of the sort of autonomized version of, um, you know, especially someone in my field talking apples to apples with someone like yourself who that's what you do day in and day out and would recognize some some early pitfalls and mistakes that, that I, you know, might make. Um, is there any – if you could share, I don't know, maybe real quick, just um, any – any um, case study or story of a particular brand or a personality, not naming names, um, that you felt maybe one good and, and one fail? Can we do that? Uh, in terms of just their IP to, strategy? Yeah, or? I think, well, just as a, you know, um, someone that's trying to create a brand, together, whether that's a brand around themselves with licensing extensions and someone who's done a good job that you think – you know, there's a good case study about naming names and or someone that and or a brand or company entity that just so, has failed. You know, here's 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 a crazy uh, kind of philosophy that I give. And and I'm going to I'm going to throw you into this because I've actually uh, you're a perfect example. Of this. Oh, no, so, not on the fail side, I hope. Well, it, <laughs> but let's talk about that for a second. So. um Sometimes in the fashion business, you can do everything right. You could have all the right pedigree, all the right experience, know all the right people, um, have all the money that you need to get going, which is usually the biggest issue is that everything you, that you like to do is, is constricted by or the choke point is not having the capital to do it. And you can bring your part, your product, which is happens to be new and novel. And by the way, in the fashion business, nothing's new or novel. Okay. So you can have new novel product by an expert who sources it well, prices it well, knows everybody, brings it out there, well-funded, show up, and no one buys it, and you can't figure it out. And uh, you, I, you've you been a part of one of those brands. And it, it blows my mind because what it, here's, what it, uh, here's what it demonstrates. It demonstrates to me that two idiots, 19-year-old kids, skateboarders, can start a clothing line in their backyard and it, it blows up to $70 million in sales for reasons that boggle the mind. They do everything wrong. They have no money. They, they're, they're, steal, you know, they're selling drugs. To, like, I, I've seen everything, right? Uh, borrowing, swashbuckling, swindling. Uh, and, and they have a, a $30, $40 million imprintable business. And, and they ship late. Everything's wrong. The fits are wrong. It's like yeah. it's a disaster. For yeah. The kids, yeah. The kids love it. And what it shows you is you're trying to sell cool and trend and you can get caught up sometimes overthinking it and it can be so well overthought and still not perform for ways that just boggle the mind because we've all seen it. You know, you walk the, the halls of all the big trade shows, there's thousands of people selling what appear to be kind of the same, roughly the same product. Right. What differentiates or distinguishes that product? Um, it's not, it's not technical hardware. This is, you know, a shirt's a shirt's a shirt. Okay, so this striped shirt with a Rukish symbol on it, I mean, it's a striped shirt. Like, you know, it's not that new and novel. So um, how do you market and play, you know, the brand building in a way where someone says, I want that one versus someone else's brand? And and it, the, the conclusion is that there is no conclusion. The conclusion is that I don't have an answer for why one works or one doesn't. It's as mysterious to me. I think that's the allure of the business. That's why people keep going into it. Every time, the, you know, the failure rate is like the failure rate of restaurants. And yet 
there's always a new restaurant in that same corner of the mall where you're like, that's the fourth restaurant that's failed there, but there's going to be a fifth guy and they're going to come in with a new concept and they think they're going to kill it. And I love the optimism, but right. It's yeah. Tough. No, that's, um, yeah. I mean, that's good sort of fatherly advice too. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I've been to a trade show in a while, but yeah, I, I would say I'd walk those shows and those halls and those endless aisles that there's three different, you know, shows going on at once and you're looking at everyone and like one of these guys is going to leap out and you're, you know, you'd have better Vegas odds, you know, putting it on green to figure out who that was going to be. Um, and yeah, sometimes people are successful despite themselves. Like, you know, for using my, my own, one was a garage startup with no business plan, you know, 10, 12 years later, which I think is what you're alluding to. I have all the knowledge base Financial resource, the, the the manufacturing pipeline, great design, great team, and I bring the product to market early, and it doesn't have quite the reception that I had anticipated it might have. And you get this – I call it like – it's like a Justin Bieber syndrome. Like you think like, God, I can kind of do no wrong. I did this. Now I'm going to do this. And no one tells you no, and no one tells you maybe that's a bad idea. I still feel like it was a valid idea. And – now I'm seeing some other companies entering that space, and they are being successful to a certain extent. And you know, I'm admittedly a bit jealous, but I, I also feel like I was a bit of a sacrificial lamb on that front too. And just so you guys know, we're talking about Athletic Recon here. If anyone wants to know, I don't even. There's you nothing are, you can I, look up. I I was paying you a compliment, uh, despite that that was sort of the. I, I wasn't going to use the word failure because it wasn't a failure, but I, but the one that did work <laughs> example, and I want to pay you the compliment. It was awesome. The product, you managed to actually put out new novel fabrications and product and a fit and a look that was athletic for males, which was pre-Lulu. I mean, this was you, – you, you were probably a victim of timing, which is – I mean, the calendar and timing on trend is as much as, of anything as any – Oh, agreed. I yeah. see the guys doing, doing you know, way above the knee shorts that were Australian eight years ago. And I was like, ah, it's too early. The hems are still way below the knee. But now those people will be crushing it. But they were just three years too early on it. So, you know, to me, you were early on it. But I, the product, I still wear it. Yeah, it's amazing. You're wearing it today. Like <laughs> I, you should be proud of it. it. Yeah, it was for men's casual technical product. It was great. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. Well, I mean, just goes to show you. You know, it, it, people have well thought out business plans, and they got all this mapped out. They got higher educations. They try to do something, it doesn't work. You know, one guy comes up with a, fi- a vinyl monkey out of a garage, and the next thing you know, uh, you're beating Roxy. And it's just, it's mental. Like that, you know, it was a crazy game. King Dolphin comes out of nowhere, and you're like, I don't even get it. But, I, yeah. <laughs> I was going to use them for example. That's when you know you're too old. Like, I just, I don't get it, you know? I mean, I don't represent them, so I guess I can just sort of editorialize. Like, there are brands I don't get, but yeah. okay. Yeah, no, for sure. And more power to them and credit to them. I don't need to understand it if the next gen is on it and they're all over it and, and whatever that magic juju that they had that perhaps people looked at the Paul Frank thing and went, a monkey on a wallet? I don't get it. That's dumb. Well, turns out not so dumb. But, you know, to each his own. But you remember, you remember the brand Drunken Monkey? Um, so that was Peter Kim's brand, Peter Kim from Hudson, who's my friend and client. And he had a streetwear brand. It was a couple years before Paul Frank. Yeah. He had a yeah. monkey. Uh, kind of had some success, not really got, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but got brought into a back end office relationship with a larger private label, uh, 
we call it multi-brand private label um, house in New York. And therein lies a lot of, you know, if you, if you look at the pathway of a lot of brands where they do fail or they struggle, it's when they do that strategic deal early on, early ish on where they take a partner. Um, and yeah, it doesn't always work out. Yeah. You're speaking in terms of, um, getting the assorbent too wide, diluted, over distributed, like that kind of thing. Well, uh, what I'm really talking about is, is so the garment business is probably as predatory as the entertainment business in terms of, I call it garment opportunists, the old Shimata Garmento guys, right? Uh, they're mostly guys, strangely. Um, and they are predatory and they have successful, uh, facilities, warehouses, back office, back end, uh, capacity, um, in buildings they generally own out in the hood, you know, and they're out in East LA or in a place where it doesn't cost them a whole lot to have a lot of extra space in a warehouse. And they will come to a small brand that's having a little bit of traction. They'll say, look, you guys are probably having some growing pains because you're doing three to 5 million, maybe 8 million. Now you don't have a dedicated, uh, you know, sample team. You don't have a dedicated customer service team. Your pick pack and ship is crap and costing you a lot of money because you're using an expensive 3PL to do it. Uh, and they'll say, we'll do it for you. And so come in here and they sell you, you know, come have a cup of coffee at our place. Look at this amazing facility. 100,000 square feet. Yeah. In Vernon, right. In places that, you know, you don't ordinarily drive through. And they say, we'll give you this corner of the facility and here's the fee. And, oh, by the way, you know, we want to own 30% of your business. And um, that's where you better immediately get a lawyer involved to talk about how to structure it, what can go wrong, plotting a pathway toward, we'll call it pathway toward disagreement. Uh, And it's disagreement or, or conflict for a variety of reasons. One, because the brand doesn't sell very well and you want to get it back. One, because the brand sells too well and you're getting ripped off. Uh, or they start overcharging you because you're getting like a studio profits, you know, every quarter you get something saying we made no profits, you get nothing. And you're thinking, how's that possible? Mm -hmm. Um, because you didn't in your documents articulate well enough, uh, you know, how the net profit definition was going to look or, you know, what counts toward marketing expense. So what, um, the predatory piece that usually gets you is, they start charging you for samples, trade shows, marketing, and it's done where they throw money at you. And then when you complain about it, they say, okay, fine. You owe us X millions of dollars to get this brand back. You say, I don't have it. They go, cool. Just leave it here. Just leave the brand. Mm. It's ours now. And that happens more than you. I have. Yeah, I have seen that. As a matter of fact, I was thinking the positive scenario you said where the brand's doing well and you're like, wait, I'm not getting paid enough or the accounting looks a little funky or more, more often than not, it doesn't work out. I don't, I can't think of a case study that that scenario you painted where a brand gets rolled up into a larger operational situation where, where there has been positive sharing and, and a good relationship. I'm sure it exists and I'm sure Maybe there's an apparel head out there listening going, hey, I got a good deal with my deal. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I haven't seen it. And I think more often than not, you can get rolled up into these scenarios and it's death. There's a couple of, of uh, good-natured folks that do those deals. Um, you know, I Some are clients, some are not, so I don't want to start naming names, um, even though I'd like to pat some of my clients on the back. 
but they're definitely, it, it is rare. I would say 10 to 20% of the time. That's how low it is. Yeah. Uh, where the relationship works all the way through to a joint exit strategy where the two of you then collectively sell to a much larger strategic or someone else. But it's rare because the, the premise of that relationship was predatory and opportunistic. And that's the part back to the psychology. Right. right. You're in need. You're desperate. And you sign a bad deal where you're giving up control and leverage in the relationship. And when you do that, once gone, that, can't, that doesn't come back. And so, you know, sometimes just to get a paycheck, to pay the rent because you haven't taken a salary those first couple of years and they say, we'll pay you an 80 grand a year, hundred grand a year salary to get going. That sounds attractive. You haven't taken 80 grand out of your company in the first five years, even though you're doing 4 million and, but that's all you get. And then they go to the profit split. And all of a sudden, by the time you're paying all the shared overhead, which you're getting overcharged for, you're buying product that they're caught, they're charging you eight bucks landed for a t-shirt printed. And you're like, it should be four. Um, you know, and then what are you going to sue your partner in the middle of your brand cycle? Like it, it the, the leverage also, and this is the other frustrating part of business and lawyers, frankly, is that it costs a lot of money. It's very disruptive financially and from a business standpoint to sue someone. Okay. So even if the piece of paper says I have a right to sue you, um, that doesn't mean it happens. That doesn't mean you find justice. In fact, most of the time you have to blow up your brand in order to stop and and sue a partner or try and you know get a tro god forbid saying you know i i get i get my brand back these are hundreds of thousands of dollars that you have to spend on the spot create conflict you're all putting a rosy face on for your retailers your retailers start asking questions what the hell's going on over there um and all of a sudden product shipping late and now your brand's gone so yeah you, you know right yeah no i mean I've, I've walked that walk um but as I hear us talk, and, and it, I guess it's hard not to kind of go there, I don't think you or I would dissuade anyone from approaching a new business opportunity. But I think as we've traced through this conversation from the very beginning, it's a path fraught with landmines and predators. And, and I mean, I, I don't. I do. I try to do some give back and try to talk, you know, at the high school and college level. And I always try to, I try to end it on a, but you can do it. And and people do succeed. And I'm a moron. And I did this, you know, I, 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 um, well, let's be positive. How let's do we spin this thing up into like, like, I'll give it to you. You know, okay? I'm going to interrupt you and give it to you. Yeah, okay. please. So the spin is even though the business, and we haven't talked about how there's now, private equity and venture capital money, Silicon Valley money, angel investor money. We'll call it the, the kind of shark tankification mm -hmm. of all business, but particularly the idea that there's person with good idea who meets rich person who gives them money. And you, you can already understand the leveraging paradigm there, right? The person who doesn't have the money is never going to be able to fend for themselves against the person with all the money. But, but the reality is we talked also earlier about barriers to entry. You can still today, particularly today with Shopify, Magento, D2C businesses, I have seen more influencer-driven businesses uh, where someone starts making product themselves. They can now source it by Google searches. They borrow some money from their parents. They build product to order, get a hype going, 
do you can do uh, a product drop, you know, because obviously limited production scarcity is the model. It's the supreme model. I'm going to build 500 of this really cool item three weeks from now, not even today. You all get in, prepay me for it, put a deposit down, I'll build it, I'll ship it to you. Zero inventory risk, money's all in, there's no wholesale sales reps, there's no trade shows, there's no writing orders, there's no factors, there's no pick packing. I mean, well, there's pick packing ship probably out of your garage. Exactly. Um, and that's it. So the, 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 the cool thing is that that's a development that 10 years ago didn't exist, or was it its infancy, that today, without a whole lot of money, kind of back to what it was in the, in the, in the 80s, when you used to say in the mid-80s to late-80s, you would say, anyone with $250,000 can start a clothing company. You couldn't start a car company. You can start a computer company. You can start a, a big company, but you can start a clothing company. Then that number kind of grew in the wholesale side to probably $3 million. You know, like if someone said, what do I need to start a wholesale clothing company? By the time you do all that stuff, it's, it's like three to five million to do it right. And yeah. we're back to a small number because of this D2C direct-to-consumer business. Yeah, and that is a positive spin, and you're right. All those things are certainly working in favor of the small guy now. But there's still that certain amount of sustainability. And I've, I've heard the, the, the number, the, the, the ramp on brands making it and, and having the financial backing to hang in there. It's about five to eight years before you're really kind of established and or making money. And you know, that's, those are rough odds. Um, and, but it does happen, you know? So the, the trick is <laughs> again, without being negative, well, don't run out of money first, but yeah. But you know, like I said, when the margins are good, remember the D to C business, you take out the middleman wholesale margin, you're working on 80, 90 points. And you can fund your own growth. So you sell $10,000 worth of product that, that now it's 20, and then it's 40, and then it's 80. And you're seeing that level if it hits, especially if you can pre-sell it uh, in some way. You know, I've, I've shepherded or watched a couple of online swim brands in California, actually one in Australia, that went to like $8 million in two years. I mean, just ridiculous. And the margins are amazing. Um, Even factoring in because you got ad buys, right? Like the universe, like that you and I grew up in, has changed. Like you got you got all the the online ad buys now. That that eats into your margin and your click throughs and all that stuff. So well, yeah, stuff is so important because you get the right people that you're not paying or or giving a little piece of the business to or whatever. Then I, I agree. If you do it by the book with SEO and ad buy, yeah, it's it's very expensive. All right, so Greg, so we've talked a little bit about you know some of the the active sports areas of focus and a little bit on celebrity. We've touched, you know, Snoop D-O-double-G. Um, any other areas of business you can talk about that would be of interest to the listeners out there? Um, well, in terms of trend, what's interesting, because I had this uh, discussion with uh, a couple of trade show folks that you know very well that um, are, are looking at the, the, view, the world of fashion and saying, you know, where are the brands going? Um, I, I, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that the phone rings now more times per week with people talking about cannabis business. Um, Not shocking. A, yeah. That is a trend where entrepreneurial, creative people that want to make money, and I think it's the wild west of wanting to make money mm. in sort of an unbounded way. Uh, the same people that are current or former garment industry success veterans are taking that capital 
and what they're excited about right now actually is cannabis. It's not my thing, but they are uh, the amount of deals. It, it's kind of like uh, when the apparel game hit 20 years ago for, for young men's uh, business. It's crazy. You, and what do those deals look like? Can you give me, can you give us a sense it's everything. of is everything? It's, it's edibles. It's, it's the production it is of, of the product. It's the distribution. It is cartridges, pens, uh, brands, apparel brands related to it, accessory. I mean, it's as if this entirety of a new industry uh, evolved with all ancillary product stuff. And so, and everyone wants to have some piece of it. Um, so those calls, believe it or not, they're all, they're all the time now. Um, the other thing that's really interesting for me, uh, you asked me sort of what am I working on is, um, I've been a surfer and skateboarder my whole life. Um, so, you know, one of the, the great guilty pleasures, um, of my unique role in the fashion space is I represent a lot of action sports companies, as you mentioned. And I got asked a couple, I guess it was like a year or two ago to help the U S Olympic team. So USA skateboarding, um, yeah, very cool. It, yeah. In Tokyo, surfing and skateboarding are both going to debut at the same time, um, which no one really knows what's going to mean for each discipline. Um, there's some sense that it might be like snowboarding in terms of a new renaissance and Burton and other brands will will skyrocket up again uh, the same way they did back when Sean White kind of made that all happen in snow. It's a little more difficult in in the summer sports where it's more diluted with a lot of other sports that are interesting. Uh, with a lot of other characters and athletes that are interesting, but surfing and skateboarding are going to be there in Tokyo. Um, the fact that I get to play a part in it a little bit, um, it's it's really cool. It's super unique, I think, on skateboarding in particular because it's such an it comes from such an anti-authority place. Totally, you know that now. And we talked about the other statesman, Tony Hawk. I mean, I'd, I'd I'd love to hear his his opinion on this. I'm sure it's obviously super favorable. Because he's a guy who literally has has put a sport on his back and brought it credibility and, and formed it um, into a competitive thing in the first place. Um, but it, it is interesting, and I wonder if there would be some kind of subcultural backlash um, to the establishment of the Olympics. You never know. This is like kind of an anomaly thing. Well, here's what's interesting about it. So um, there is a backlash, but it's 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 actually pretty small. And the reason is, I think that USA Skateboarding, and they are my clients, so I'm going to talk uh, nice of them. But but it, I think it's 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 objectively accurate. They've done a great job. They've done a great job of trying to keep it authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't over either water it down in terms of the sport or go into an area that they didn't want to go. You know, um, there's a street, uh, a, a very contemporary street. A discipline and a pool park discipline, which kind of matches what the Vans Pool Park series is doing right now, uh, the Vans Pool series. So uh, there isn't vert, but but close to vert because the, the pool series gets there in terms of a lot of air uh, on these runs. Um, they didn't do didn't go stuntman. There's no mega ramp. There's no you know death defying mm. stuff. Cause that's yeah. not what the Olympics is usually about. Yeah, right. But but the interesting thing to distinguish between skate and surf and surf is a whole different. Uh, the level of pushback in surf is is gigantic. I mean, it's it's it starts from the WSL and the monetization of it, and the idea that people are trying to make money on it. Because Olympics, at its core, isn't about making money. It's non-commercial. It's for your country only, and it's not 
This is not an offshoot of a big competitive tour that's trying to be the next NFL, which is what surf has been trying to position itself, right or wrong. Um, skate actually has had less pushback. Um, I think people are more genuinely excited about it. Um, the athletes just got named for the U.S. team. Nija, it's going to be great. Um, and they'll do it right. Whereas the surf, there's a, just, the, just the diatribe, just the, the dialogue between should it be in a pool or should it be in the ocean is itself a giant, you know, cause for uh, debate. Yeah. You know, I think as a parent, too, um, in this world that's increasingly based on technology and kids having cell phones and, and being influenced heavily by video games, as I look at sports like like that coming on that are super relevant, you know, in particular where my kids are now um, with their outdoor activities, I just look at it and go, like, what a positive thing for a kid to go outside. Like, he's my, you know, my 10-year-old's going to see that Olympics, and he's he's going to be inspired by that. I know that. So... You know, again, at at that thirty thousand foot view, from the integration of those sports coming into the the format that is the Olympics, you know, he gets fired up watching swimming. Well, he's really going to get fired up uh, with with the more relevant of the times. I feel like sports. So, like, I'm happy to see it. I welcome it. You know, as a fan and as someone who you know, kid growing up in the '80s, um, totally speaks to me, and it's a wonderful validation really is going to be how the networks put marketing money toward creating packages around these athletes. And these are compelling athletes. They tell great story. I think there's interesting off the field or off the, you know, off their boards as they are on them. So if they, if NBC or whomever's doing the Olympics in 2020 builds packages, gets you to know the athletes, um, you know, kind of what their life is like, I think it's going to be great. Yeah. Super. Are you in on, um, do they have to wear like, are they allowed to wear their, how, how does sponsorship works there? Oh God. Uh, rule 50. So I could, yeah, that's like a semester long lecture on, <laughs> you know, it's, it's called rule 50. Uh, it is, it is very authoritarian in terms of what it tells you you can and can't do with sponsorships. I will give you the short answer for skateboarding is that you are allowed to use equipment, the defined term equipment of your choosing, not what the particular USA skateboarding sponsor is or the national USOC sponsor is. So uh, equipment for purposes of skateboarding includes footwear. So mm. despite the fact that Nike is the sponsor at the high level, uh, these guys, if they are currently an Adidas uh, sponsored athlete and, you know, in skate footwear is actually the, the preeminent money-making sponsorship for skateboarding is footwear generally or apparel, but uh, they'll get to wear that shoe. But they will be wearing, you know, when they walk out, it's going to be the Ralph Lauren uh, walkout outfit like everyone else, you know, including the USA basketball people. And, you know, you're going to wear whatever the Olympic outfit is. And then you're going to wear the Olympic warm-up gear, uh, which won't be your sponsor, but then you can wear your shoes. But if you are a smaller – so this is a huge opportunity. If you're a smaller footwear brand that's got uh, an endorsed athlete on your roster, you're going to get – more eyeballs than you ever could have imagined. Yeah, That's so, pretty cool. That knees and some other smaller, cooler, independent yeah. brands are going to have some play there because yeah. they sponsor some of those athletes. So that's going to be, that's marketing bonus for them. Um, again, you know, but the camera doesn't have necessarily need to show the shoes or uh, we'll yeah. see. Yeah, we'll see how they do. You know, NBC is, is beholden to its sponsors at its level. And so there'll be a lot of political levels of kind of how that plays out. 
there won't be a Red Bull hat on people. You know, they won't have a podium where they're allowed to kind of do what they usually do. What about Oakley and the goggles with the big O on the side? They seem to have done a masterful job of that. Is that equipment? Uh, I don't know the ski part of it, uh, okay. the snowboard part. My suspicion is if they're wearing it, then Oakley either owns that sponsorship at the high level mm. or they – I'm guessing maybe goggles were considered technical equipment for someone on a mountain. Mm. That would be the answer. I don't know. Cool, man. Yeah, they they, they seem to always show up in the in the camera view, you know, front and center. Yeah. I mean, I'm wearing my electrics right now, but uh, – you know, all the all the eyewear brands obviously would like to show up on stage if they can. No doubt. Um, Greg, I um I'm very thankful for your time and respectful for your time. We had some some technical audio issues earlier uh, yeah, that that curbed the curbed the time a little bit, but we hung in there. We're on your your daughter's Mac making this happen. I feel really good about that. Um, thank you for coming on. Um, hope that you guys listening out there learn something from Greg. He's got a ton of wisdom. He's super good. If you guys um, are – here's my, my plug for you. He's not looking for business, guys. He's fine. He's living the dream. But uh, I have uh, personally had some experience with him. He's fantastic. And I, obviously, as you've heard for the last hour or however long we've been talking, dude knows his business. Um, always a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to hopefully my next iteration with you involved in it. And uh, I don't know if, 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 you, uh, if you have any social handles or plugs or if you're just coming on today to kind of share and give back or if there's any – if you want people to get a hold of you or anything like that? Uh, I try to keep that a little closer to the vest, but okay. uh, for sure, you know, by my email, uh, no problem. Put it on site, give it out. If people have a question, it's my pleasure. Uh, I am busy. I get busy. So I can't take every question from every person all the time, but I also uh, have some other lawyers that work for me. They can. So yeah, no worries. Awesome, man. Greg, thank you sincerely. Super cool. It's a pleasure. Um, when I come back into town, we'll, we'll hook it up. Um, otherwise, have a good day. Go get some surf. Yeah, brother. Thank you. Later, good to see you, Ryan. Thank you. If you like what you've heard, click subscribe. And to hear more of the Brevity Code podcast, check us out on iTunes and now on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and tune in.